Okay, so we started a new series last week. Anybody recall? I was not here. Oh, no, because we already did that. It was last week. I really wasn't here last week. Oh, I didn't come last week. Are you here, Mallory? Yeah, but I can't see you. Mallory isn't that. What hour? Use your brain. What'd you talk about? Anything? Remember anything? No. Well, it was Levi, and you talked about, let me think of what's a good clue for you. Were you here, Audrey? You and... How about... Did you talk about battle formations? Uh, I think so. What did that have to do with the topic? Did you talk about Satan? Demons? Yeah. Angels? Yeah. Okay. Our new topic is spiritual warfare. Is that kind of what to include the celestial warfare? Um, thank you. Um, uh, I'm, there are things that happen in other dimensions that are warfare. Um, so, <clears throat> when we talk about engaging in warfare, it is. Um, a long game. Warfare, it doesn't mean just a battle or a little event. It is usually involves people that it's a lifestyle. It is their entire existence um, is consumed with it. And we last week we talked about a little bit, or you guys talked about Satan and demons that are at war and that um, that they are at war with any who belong to God. So who belongs to God? Okay, yep. So angels, humans that believe in him. Basically the entire world Well, yes, in that sense, everyone. But um, <clears throat> you belong to him as in he has power over you, but you still have a choice, right? You can choose a side on, as to a side to be on. And we w- went over a little bit in discussing that the angels and the fallen angels, which are often referred to as demons now that they are fallen. Um, They chose to leave heaven with Satan and are in rebellion and are at war with God's side. So there are spiritual things that are going on in other dimensions that are in and around us. It's like overlapping. You ever have like... um, You guys still do that in math classes, do they still use the projectors where you have the acetate sheet that you write on in elementary school? Yeah, and, but, and then the teacher will pull out another one and like overlap it over the top so you can see many things, but then they exist on separate planes. But it, well, that's, I don't know. I don't know if it's a good analogy, but it's an analogy of how we live in this realm, but there are other things that are going on around us and that can affect us that exist in a spiritual dimension or even other... Well, there isn't a name celestial. That's more apocryphal or um, just um, mythology. It's not necessarily a real thing. 
Um, if, unless you mean by like celestial as in heaven, but uh, there's not battle that's going on in heaven. But that heaven does exist in a separate dimension that is different from ours. Um, so, <clears throat> with all of this going on, um, there are different tactics that you can use to fight in a battle. And we're going to talk about tactics that are used in real physical battles here on Earth and how those can relate to, to give you a picture of what spiritual battles are like. And you talked a little bit last week about that, um, about an ancient and still used today tactic of, and the Greeks were famous probably one of the first ones in history that this was, it was written down or like as to how they did it. Do you remember this, Mallory? A little bit? So if this is a group of 100 soldiers, let's just say, so you have a whole bunch of, call them companies, but I can't remember what the Greeks call them. Right, and you have opposing sides. So this is green team and pink team that are fighting against each other. And if, in, the, in the sense of the Greeks, that they would have their shields with all their spears coming out, we're looking down on top of them. And they're going to clash, and they're going to engage in, in physical combat here, man to man. But one of their goals was they would have, say, this one on your right side is the best unit. And this one on this side was the other Greeks' city's best unit. And their goal was that this one would, because they were the best one, would crush this guy and be able to come around and swing around to the side so then these guys are ganged up on. And then they're being fought, so it's two to one. They're trying to do the same thing on this side, and uh, oftentimes they said that it would actually be like a wheel, like they'd constantly be moving around this way because they're making forward progress and they're having to retreat and they're kind of like spinning around. And the goal is for you to eventually be able to team up on their enemies because it's hard to fight two people at once, or then three people at once, and four people at once until you're just overwhelmed. So. That was kind of our intro into the sense that you pull that over into your life and in in how you live within the Christian community and that there are also other spiritual beings, angels and demons, that when you are part of the body of Christ, you are part of a group, that you have a better chance of survival, of winning battles when you have strength in numbers. So, all that, now that should lead into this well for to answer easily, how do you win a fight? Whether it's mano e mano or brigade against brigade of thousands and thousands. You'd have to come up with a winning strategy that employs your smarts, but also have an equal amount of strength between the teammates and actually allows a winning strategy to actually throughout the entire play to actually work. Okay, good strategy. Or I would go one step uh, more overarching intellectual power. You also said strength. Strength, okay. So what would you call, what's another thing that you would call strength? In, in relation to warfare. Power, okay. What kind of power? Let's simplify it down to a small scale. If you are in a boxing ring or a MMA ring, UFC, whatever, how do you win? You have to try to overpower your opponent. But you'd also have to have a winning strategy. Okay, yes. But let, okay, 
I, those are both true, but how, what if we said you're you a bantam weight, which is like you know what a bantam chicken is? Like the They're like the tiniest. So the bantam weight, I think, is the smallest of all the fighting classes. I mean, you're going to fight a heavyweight, which is the biggest. So you're talking like 110, 120 pounds against, I think heavyweight starts at like 220 or 240. You have to outsmart them. Do you think you could outsmart them and still win? There's actually a possibility that if you With following the rules. No, there's no way. You're going to get crushed. Obviously, warfare is a little different. We do have some rules, but everybody doesn't follow the rules. Warfare is generally whatever it takes to win, you do it. So physical power is really important. Um, power, I also have down here power of force. Because if you think about wars, even here with the Greeks we're talking about, they have spears and shields. What if your spear tip is made out of stone? Not that theirs were. And the other guy's spear tip is made out of iron. Iron could actually beat stone depending on whether the stone is sharpened or not. Iron will most will definitely because stone can break, right? Break it and it's no good. Iron is ductile, it flexes, it doesn't tend to break, usually, and you're going to, you have better implements of force to push on your opponent. Um, so you have to really, in the end, have a larger army. You don't want to have your 100-guy army go up against a 1,000-man army. Typically, unless you have... Um, Better, more complex, advanced weapons that can actually beat them. Yes, that would be a difference. So in the U.S. Army, there is a rule in the strategies, a rule or you could say a guideline, but pretty much it's a hard and fast rule that when you are strategizing your attack, that you always plan to have three-to-one ratio against the enemy. That for every three of your guys there's only one of theirs. So if you're planning on attacking a thousand man army, you bring 3,000 at least. Because it almost guarantees that you're going to win if your equipment is the same. Because or, you can just overwhelm them. Or if your equipment's better than theirs, but if they have the better equipment, it's more likely that they can Yes, so that has a caveat to it, an additional thing that the only way you can break that rule is with a force multiplier, is what they call it. Which means something like if it's all infantry, but then you had three tanks, that changes the game plan, right? Or you have the ability to call in an airstrike, a plane to come and launch a couple missiles at them while you're moving across the field. That's a force multiplier as well. Or if you have like grenades, like a knife or bomb or something. Yes, all those things are things that can give you the advantage. So, it, um, there's other things though that less scrupulous methods that have been used in past history. Um, do you guys know who Genghis Khan or Genghis Khan, depending on what school of thought you think he should be, his name should be pronounced as? No. Who, who said they do know? What do you know about him? Yep. Well, uh, not all of China, but yes, more or less. Uh, much of Asia he did. What else do you know about him? Where's he come from? I don't know a single thing. Well, this is way back in ancient history. Mongolia, which, what do you know about Mongolia? Anybody know anything about it? Where is it? In where? It is. It's kind of between Russia and China up there. So it's, and it's all rolling hills grasslands. The entire place, there's just, it's just grass, pretty much. And they have tons of horses, 
they are all, so their entire army and their, even their culture, they live in tents and travel across the plains. Kind of like, think, think of like the Apache Indians here in America, that they were plain people that, as in like lived on the plains. But they're all archers as well. And they had all sorts of amazing stuff. They were said to be able to fire like three arrows in one horse's like gallop like and hit their targets as they're galloping across. Impressive. Yes, there are very, there's so many other things. They were said to be able to like swing underneath the saddle and shoot from between the horse's legs and all crazy stuff. They were amazing. But Genghis Khan was beyond just that. He what he used to do um, is to win his battles and and he would try to actually capture cities before even fighting a battle with them. Because when he got to walled cities, his horses and his archers weren't as good, and he would have to hire people to build siege weapons to destroy walls and get in. So he, his goal was always to defeat the cities without even having to fight. And what he would do um, with his massive horse army is he would <clears throat> approach that city and as he's approaching the city this is our city with a gate well because you can just wait and hide in the buildings and then when he's out of arrows, what's he going to do? So they would see from the city wall, they see way off in the distance a dust cloud. And it'd be a really big dust cloud. Here, and a little person, okay? Big dust cloud. And a lot of times the cities would, the rulers of the cities, after knowing about him, he was famous, after a while, would say, before, by the time he got there, they would send out an emissary or a representative and surrender the city just when he showed up because they could see how big of an army he had off in the distance with, from the dust cloud. And the thing is, though, that he wasn't quite as big as he seemed to be because what he would do is he would have all of his soldiers and they each had uh, two or three horses actually each soldier they pull two behind or have two on a lead behind them so they could swap out as the t horses got tired and each horse they would tie a bunch of sticks to their tails to create a ton of dust behind them as they were traveling once they got close to the city so and it would look like this huge army that was two, three times the size that it actually was. And they would surrender without even knowing how, how uh, strong he was. Another example of this kind of trickery, has anybody ever heard about a little farther along, recent in history, in World War II, the Ghost Army? Yes, more or less. There, so there were people there. It wasn't that they had left. It was that they had never been there in the first place. And they, um, they did it a couple times, but the most notable one was shortly after D-Day landing on Omaha Beach and the other beach fronts there in France, and they pushed inland away. They needed to cross the Rhine River, which divides France and Germany. And... They, in one location where they weren't going to cross over with their huge division, which is hundreds of thousands of guys, they sent 110,000, no, 1,100 soldiers with a bunch of artists and prop makers, and they put inflatable tanks and made it look like they had this whole 30,000 man um, 
brigade up there north on the north of the Rhine, and the Germans actually thought that that was them and where they were going to cross. And you can look it up. You can see pictures of like these inflatable, yeah, these tanks that they don't look great when you're looking at it, like if you were to see that in the driveway, but if you were looking through binoculars from, I don't know, a three quarters of a mile away, you'd be like, oh, that looks like a bunch of tanks there. So that, and they were able to successfully force the Germans to build up their defenses where they thought they were gonna cross, and then made an easier path for them where the actual army crossed further to the south. So, this, and you'll probably wonder how, but this is the same in spiritual warfare that power, whether it's real or perceived, can win a battle even before the battle has begun. And so, before we get into the meat of explaining that, let me ask you some questions. Well, each of, I got one question for each of you, though. What does your name mean? Oh. Do you know what your name means, Abby? Yeah, it means like, um, like rock, or strong, whatever. Okay. What's your I name? Know. I don't remember like, the original one, but one of them is Dark Steel. Oh, okay. <laughs> Which is the opposite. <laughs> That's okay. Okay. I can't remember, but it's one of them. What's yours, Gideon? Woodsman? Okay. Do you know Felicia? No, I know what my name means in Latin, though. What's it mean in Latin? Well, if you take my name and transfer it to like the old Latin, it actually transfers to Felix, which means happy. Okay. That's all I know. Noble strength. Okay. Mine means supplanter or like cheater. Yeah. It's not very nice. <laughs> so. Mine actually meant Unfortunate, wow. Oh, wow. That might be worse than mine, I don't know. Oh, Mal, yeah. Okay. So, let me ask you this then. Do you know what Satan or the devil means? What their name, what his name actually means? Um, it, that, that's a synonym. You're close. It's actually good because they both um, are slight, are a little different, and it gives you a fuller picture of who he is. Satan actually means accuser. Accuser. Yep. And the devil means liar. So he's or, accused of lying. Or slanderer. You know what slanderer is like? Someone that kind of tarnishes someone's good name. Sometimes. Yes. Yep. Uh, kind of spreads lies about somebody. Um, so basically like someone that's like, hey, have you heard this rumor? Yes, yep, a lot of that. So, <clears throat> now, you might say, I'm sure a lot of you, Mallory, me, Sierra, would like to say, well, my name doesn't really describe who I am. <laughs> that That's not necessarily me. Um, but... And that's that's true, but did you ever have your name changed? Ooh, now that's intriguing because you originally, if you did have your name changed, it could have been something else. There are some people in the Bible who had their name changed. Actually, um, Gideon in the Bible had his name changed, and his name was—I can't remember exact what his name was changed to—but it meant um, basically the enemy of Baal, the false god that he tore the idols down from. It it wasn't that he didn't still use Gideon, but it was like a added name to it, like a nickname for him. Huh. Um, there are lots of other people who had their name changed in the Bible. Paul. Yes. Yep. And Nations. Yep. Jacob was changed to Israel, which means struggles with God. And 
It was after, yep. That's right. So, do you know that Satan's name was changed? Right, it was Lucifer. Do you, now, do you know what Lucifer means? Isn't it like something? Isn't it like beauty? Yeah, like beauty or something? Um, you're close. You're along the right lines. Now, Lucifer is actually a Latin form. It's the Latin version of this. There's a different Hebrew name. Um, no, you're closer. So Lucifer actually doesn't mean this, but that's what it's translated to in our Bible. So this is the definition of the Hebrew one, and it is Daystar. Daystar? Yep. And that's, he had that name because it, he was so beautiful and said that he shone like a star and was at jewels. Now remember, he's an, he is... Uh, I mean, it doesn't change much of who he is, who he, his creature, but he was an angel. I heard someone say that he had four beautiful white wings. Um, I'm not sure about that one. I will, I'm not an expert on that. I, I'd have to look it up, but I will get back to you on that. Um, so his name, you, when you a name is changed, it has a whole lot more meaning especially in the Bible, because, especially with humans, because your parents name you and they don't know what you're going to be. You know, they're not naming you because that's what you are. They didn't say Mallory is going to be ill-fated. They just saw, like, the, na- the sound of the name. So, you know, my parents didn't intend for me to be a cheater. Okay. Why don't you tell your mom what it means and see her reaction? She probably has heard it already from somebody, I'm sure. So, but when the name is changed, especially in the Bible, it does mean what the new name is. There's a reason why it was changed to that. Because he changed. He was a follower, or he was a servant of God. Not of lying. He thought that he was better than God. He was prideful and thought he could be God. And that's why he was cast out. And um, so, and Jesus confirms this because he says in Matthew that Satan is both a liar and a murderer. So we got the liar part down, right? You see it from Genesis. He tells Eve a lie about what will happen if she eats the fruit. And, but why a murderer? Hmm. I don't know. eternal life and you fall asleep. Okay. So it's like, you know. Okay. I don't know. He can't, right? Was it something from like Great Celestial War or something like that? Nope. What's Satan's goal? To destroy man, basically, like from God. God. Yes, destroy man he does. God, basically, to destroy who? Man and God. Um, I think he knows that he can't destroy God. He wants power. Yes, and he wants to take out whoever he can with him. He knows what's going to happen to him. He knows what's in the Bible better than we do, because he's been around a long time. Okay. Does that mean that he might technically know God's plan? He does. But he still, it doesn't change how he rebels against him. So, his desire is to kill you however he can. He would prefer that your spirit is never awakened by a relationship with Jesus. He would prefer that you never are saved that's the way he would prefer to kill you is spiritually. Now, if he can't do that, he will be satisfied with just taking your life, your physical life. So that's why he is a murderer in the literal sense. Now, how does he go about this? Like, like, 
Um, he, I mean, he has done that with God's permission. But what's his goal? If we're talking about two categories of things that he might do, it relates to the death of who he is by his definition of his name. Okay, prod them. What do we call that? What's one word we use for that? What is that? Tempting. Tempting. Okay, temptation. That, and what does he use to tempt you? Anything. Anything, okay. Is it always true what he says? It's never really true. It can be true. He does. He will use it, but usually he will mix truth with a lie. Okay. Now, because the only way how's, what's the other way? Usually, if he's tempting you, he is. Do you? Um, I don't know a good way to put this, but temptation oftentimes. He is appealing to your pride. You usually think pretty well of yourself when you fall into temptation. You think, oh, I can handle it, or it's not a big deal. Um, I'm better than this job, some people think. Uh, that could be some. That could be it. Yep. Now, what's our other emotion if that? Instead of being on the high of thinking well of ourself, what's on the flip side of that coin? Meekness, like um, this job is sometimes. Guilt, okay. What does guilt cause? Sorrow. Depression, okay, that's good. That's where we get the accuser, that he will accuse you of your sins. And that's, then you get guilt. And cause depression, feeling, or simply you could just say feeling down, feeling low. And so he's going to get you in either case. He will get you when you're at your highest of highs. You think everything's great in life. I'm doing so good. Or when you kind of hit like rock bottom. Or when you hit rock bottom. He will, he is very skilled at doing either one. And, oh, I'll add to that, that you feel worthless. Now, let me ask you, are you worthless? No. Nobody is truly worthless. How do you know that? Everyone has their own way and value. Because God tells us Where, what does he tell you that? How do you know that? Okay, that's a good place to start. We're made in his image. What does that mean? Use something other than Christianese to tell me that. Like Christian lingo. Use something that somebody else would understand. You tell someone that knows nothing about... Okay, and what does that mean? What? Okay, yes, so... That means, what qualities then do you have that God also has? Not that they're as good as his, but they're like a reflection. Okay, a choice. What else? I was thinking, like, we have the song that we always sing when people are being dedicated. Precious jewels. Okay, that's good. Yep, that comes from scripture. I can't tell you where, but I've read the verse before. That's good that he values you very much. Felicia said the fruits of the Spirit. Yes, those all come from God. Those are all good things that everybody would agree with. How about that you're also creative? I've seen all of you be creative in different ways. Not the same ways always. But God is an amazing creator, too. So there's tons of things that we get from him, and he values those. Okay, that's good. Um, So, Satan's goal, then, in this battle over your spirit, because these things 
relate to your spirit, even though depression can sometimes could just be caused by a chemical imbalance. There are people that just have that. They need to take some sort of uh, whatever it might be compound. Sometimes? Yeah, sometimes they need that, or they need to do it in physical ways that they make sure that they are eating enough, that they're getting enough time out with people, with nature, and that helps them. But there are other ways that Satan gets in there with concepts of worthlessness, that you are, you have sinned too bad to be of any value. That's one thing that he will push. And what he tries to do is to make you feel outnumbered three to one, 10 to one, a thousand to one. And people can get hugely depressed, hugely feel extremely low that sometimes people feel and I mean, for all intensive purposes, cannot get out of bed. They are that depressed that people can get in that state. And that's one way, that's just a small way, but a way that he is satisfied with that. If he can make it so then you feel so terrible that you don't want to be around other Christians, you don't want to go to church, that you feel guilty, he will do that. That's a way that he will get to you. Um... And he wants you to feel that there is an overwhelming opposition. Anyone have any other examples of what could be an overwhelming thing in life? Okay, doubt in yourself. That's good. I've seen that a lot. How about um, a huge loss? We've known people that have had a loss in their life. How about, like, you could have a loss of a family member. Some people have a hard time dealing with that. How about loss of physical ability? Sometimes people, they may lose a leg. They may um, be unable to work anymore. Those things can make you feel worthless. Uh, Loss of opportunity, a missed opportunity, failure in something that they held in high regard. And he will put, use those points and those, um, those experiences and press down on you with everything that he has to make you just to crush your spirit. If he can get you to focus on those, get you to, that that's all you can think about, that that's weighs you down so much, um, that you may look for a way out. People get desperate sometimes, and they like the rulers in the city watching that Mongolian Horde coming, perceived horde, all the dust that's kicked up from that, they get desperate and they surrender. They give up. And that giving up can look different for a lot of people. An extreme physical example would be suicide. A Something that doesn't seem as extreme, but is equally or worse in detriment to their spirit is just quitting the desire to be a Christian altogether. Sometimes they can even lock their house in their house for 20 years. Yep, that can happen. That's another extreme example. So, it's pretty depressing, right? Pretty uh, dark. So what in the world do you do about that? What do I do about that? What can you do about that? Trying to get back out there, maybe? Like, trying to actually spend time with people. Okay, that, that, can be an early, um, that can be an early answer, right? At the early uh, steps at it with 
dealing with depression or something like that is just being able to get out of the house. So let's look at Ephesians chapter 6. In the New Testament there, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, chapter 6 of Ephesians, and we looked at this verse last week, or one of these verses, but we're going to look at a few more of them. Yes, verse 11 to 14. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Uh, verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil and the Okay, pause there. So, um, so the first thing that it says that you need to do is to be prepared. You need to be ready because eventually you are going to have to go against the wiles of the devil. That is, you're going to have to go against his lies, his tricks, his just like a trick of an inflatable tank or a cloud of dust that makes the army look bigger. You're going to have to go against something like that. And we're going to go on now, verse 14, and this is going to tell us how to grow our spiritual power. Okay, what's the first thing that verse says? Stand. doesn't say sit or lay down or lounge or whatever. It says stand. Why does it say stand? Because sometimes like there's people saying you have to stand up for your rights. Some people are just saying lay down and die already. Okay, it, it's a statement, right, that you are drawing a line in the sand you are saying I'm going to oppose this force coming against me alright stand there straight back shoulders back ready to face it you're not going to hide or run away from it and then what do you have to do after that what was that Audrey? Know the truth, all right. So, do you know what section of the Bible this is? Anybody? What are we talking about here? Oh, yes. But I mean, specifically these verses coming up. The armor of God, right? Do you guys remember the armor of God? I think we did it maybe like a year or two ago. Um, but... There's all these things that Paul says you have to put on the spiritual armor and able in order to do spiritual battle. And the first thing that he says is to girt your loins with truth. Um, a more modern uh, translation sometimes says the belt of truth. Um, but if you think about it, that you're putting all these things on when they have these pieces of armor there are like leather belts with buckles to hold them on it is what holds everything together is truth who is truth god okay so and all truth comes from him and you need to know what god is and know what he provides you what, who is it that says, is it Smokey the Bear that says knowing's half the battle? Is that him? Who is it that says that? Um, anyways, so in the... Huh? Oh, I, don't, I can't. So in the military, there is a saying that, uh, or a motto, an unofficial one, but where they say, know your equipment. And that means that if you have your rifle, 
You better know how far you can shoot with it accurately. You need to know how many rounds you have in each magazine. You need to know about your strengths and weaknesses, basically. Well, you need to know how to also fix it if it breaks, if it stops firing, if a round gets uh, gets jammed. jammed. You need to know how to clean it to keep it uh, up in good running condition. That's just one thing. Sure you need to know. Right. You also need to know how to repair your Humvee at user level maintenance. You need to know how to check the oil. You need to know how to check the air tire in the, the air in the tires at the right pressure. You need to know how to tow it if it breaks down. You need to know how to tow your buddy's Humvee if his breaks down. There's, and that's just two pieces of equipment. There's radios, there's, if, there's your pistol, there's your body armor. How, how do you take off your body armor if you get shot? Or how do you take your buddies off if he gets shot and you need to get to the wound? Well, there's a special pull cord that you pull and the whole thing falls apart. But if you don't know that, your buddy is going to bleed out if you don't get to that wound, and he could die. So it's a huge thing in the Army. You have to know your equipment. you got to read the manuals. you got to know what to do in an emergency. Yep. Now, it's the same thing with spiritual warfare that you need to know your equipment and what you, your resources that you have available. Number one piece of equipment that you have is your Bible. But what else is a piece of equipment that you have available to you? I mean, it's not, it's less a thing and more a who. God? More specifically. Jesus? Nope. There we go. The Holy Spirit, right? That's your connection to the spiritual side of God. That's how you connect with him. You need to know him and be able to hear him when he speaks to you. To know those proddings, to be able to uh, receive that message from God. So, if you don't... Um, well, let's go on to... Um, Isaiah chapter 45, right in the middle of the Bible. Isaiah 45, 1 to 6, we're going to read. <clears throat> this is specifically talking about Cyrus, but this... Um, this can be pulled out to apply to everybody. It's just he's just one example of this. Um, verse one through six of Isaiah forty-five. Thus saith the Lord to His anointed, to Cyrus, who, whose right hand I have folded to subdue nations before him. I will loose the loins of kings to open before him the two leave gates, and the gates shall not be shut. I will go before thee and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of brass, the gates of brass, and cut and sunder the bars of iron. And I will give thee the treasures of darkness, and he enriches the secret places, and thou mayest please know. That I, the Lord, which have called thee by thy name, the God, and the God of Israel. For Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, my elect, I have even called thee by thy name, and have surnamed thee, though thou hast not known me. I am the Lord, and there is no other besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me. That they may know from the birth, the rising of the sun. Okay, so what is God doing for Cyrus? What's his interaction with Cyrus like? He's kind of helping him like, take information with it, but there's uh, 
Um, not a problem, but yes, you're right. He's helping him conquer nations. What's he doing for him? So there's specific things in there. Yeah, he's making a path open before him. It says he's going to make the crooked path straight for him. What else does he say about Cyrus that is an important aspect? When did he meet him? When did he know him? It's in, um, yeah. He said, I, I called thee. I have surnamed thee, though you did not know me. He said, I knew you despite that. So, <clears throat> even though you don't know what you need, you can rest in the fact that God has your army already ready. He already knows your need for tomorrow, for the next hour, for the next years. And this is not a dust cloud like Satan uses. It's not an inflatable tank that he says, well, maybe you can trick the enemy with this. No, he gives you something real and tangible to use. And <clears throat> Satan, though, is going to put inflatable tanks up. And what he's going to try to do is, for one thing he might do, is try to tell you that maybe you're not pure enough to be a part of that church. Or you're not pure enough to be part of that prayer group. Or you're not good enough and you'll believe it if you don't have a defense ready, if you don't have your shield of faith, which is in verse 16 of Ephesians 6, says that above all, taking the shield of faith, that you're able to quench the fiery darts of the wicked. You want to stop arrows, you got to have something to catch them with. And that's not your hands. You got to have something that's hard, something that's strong, that's, that is um, defense, that is a strong defense. And that's your faith. You find your, um, that faith is grounded in his truth. I want to turn to Exodus. At the beginning of your Bible, second book, 31, verse 13. This is when Moses is getting instructions and how the nation of Israel is to structure their lives. Yes, please. Okay, what did that last part say? The last phrase. What's that mean? To sanctify you? What's it mean to be sanctified? Thirteen. That's okay. Make you pure, right? So if Satan is telling you that you're not good enough, if you feel inadequate, what does God tell you? That you're pure. That you're pure, that I took care of that. I sanctified you. And the Lord, the Hebrews have a lot of different types of wor or words for God. Um, for Lord, and this one it actually is Jehovah Mukadesh, which means um, the Lord sanctifies, or you could extrapolate that to Jesus sanctifies, 
because he's the one who came and he paid the price for anything that is going to make you feel guilty. He said, I already took care of that. Your guilt is gone. I will fill in the gaps where you come short. Now, what does that give you then? What piece of armor do you have from that? Yes, okay, it's the truth. The truth about what? Because the truth kind of wraps up all your armor together. Specifically, if we're talking about being sanctified, your sins forgiven, the helmet of salvation okay, protects you, protects your life, your head. That's if you lose your head, you're dead. All right. Now, what if you feel abandoned? Despite knowing that God is everywhere. Because, um, yeah, you might feel, you might start to lose faith. That could be a result of that. Yes, you feel helpless. Is that how many people have felt lonely before? Okay. But don't you, how many of you know that God will never leave you? See, it, it can still happen, right? See, it's, it's hard. Sometimes you just feel lonely. And that can get worse sometimes. You can feel abandoned by people. But... <clears throat> I want you to look at the beginning of that verse 13 in chapter 31. What does it tell you to do? That's telling Moses to tell us this. But right after that. Okay, what do you do with that day? And who's at church? Right, your, your friends who believe the same thing that you do, right? I'm not saying that's going to fix all of your lonely problems, but you're not going to fix them if you don't go to church. You got to go there. That's that's the first step. That's where the church is already a spiritual army. It's already there. And anyone has the ability to be a part of it. That's a spiritual army that you can actually it's more tangible to you. There are people that in our church who are doing spiritual warfare by praying all the time. There are some people that do a lot of praying in our church. And now, there are spiritual army that God gives us that you do not see. Who makes up that? Angels. Okay. And that, that's a vast resource that God uh, puts on our side that he uses them for us. We're not going to read it because it spans a bunch of chapters. But Jacob in the Bible, if you remember, he had to run away from his family because Esau wanted to kill him. Because he cheated Esau out of the birthright and the blessing. And he's gone for over 14 years. Because he had to serve seven years for his uncle to get his first wife. And he cheated him and gave him his, her sister. He served another seven years for the original girl that he wanted to marry. So he has two wives and he comes back now to his parents' land. And he is very nervous about having to meet Esau again. He's very unsure about that. He's kind of been forced out by Laban his uncle, because things are not good between them. They've not treated each other well, and God has basically told him, you need to get out of there. He doesn't feel like he belongs back at home where he left. He thinks Esau might still try to kill him when he gets there. 
and and he even sends gifts in advance to Esau. He sends like a whole flock of sheep, a whole flock of uh, well, a whole herd of cows, and like all these gifts ahead to him, trying to appease him. He is feels very alone. Doesn't feel like anybody's on his side. But then there's just two verses that where God said shows him as they're going lets him see into the other realm, into another dimension, and he sees that there is a whole army of angels all around them as they are traveling. And that's God showing him and saying, you don't know it, but you're not alone. I have sent, not only am I with you, but I have sent my angels to surround you, to keep you safe through this. They are protecting you from the enemy. Who do you think those angels are protecting Jacob from? Yeah. Yeah. Just protecting him from the other fallen angels that are operating within that realm that the Bible calls the air. He's there creating a, uh, a wall around him. So, lastly, the last thing that you can use as your defense, as your, and this is your biggest force multiplier for your army. This is your ultimate weapon. This is your nuke that you pull out when you need it. Okay, um, whatever the red button. Destroyed you too, though. Well, it's not like that. It's it's not a perfect example. So, who do you think? Or, well, I might have given it away, but what is that ultimate weapon that you have? God. The ultimate. More specifically. Jesus. Jesus is, is the name that you can call on, that you can wave his banner over you. There's just like there's Jehovah. Um, what did we say? What did I say before? That was what you said. No, but Jehovah saint that sanctifies. There's also Jehovah, his banner, like a name that means Jehovah's ba- Jehovah the banner that you wave over you in battle. And when you call on Jesus, just his name, something happens. I want you to turn, somebody turn to James 2.19. It's right uh, at the end, a little bit before Revelations, and somebody else turned to Revelations 19, or everybody else can. Abby, you got James. Okay, Abby, get James 2:19. Everybody else, Revelations 19, 11 through 16. Hold on. 19. Yep, right towards the end. 11 through 16. So when you're ready, Abby, go ahead and read. 219, please. Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. Okay. What does it say that the devils, or you could say swap it out for demons, what do they do at the name of Jesus? Makes them, makes them afraid, makes them tremble. Another translation is shudder. Now, why do you think they do that? Why would they be afraid? Okay. That's true. That's true. Let's read now then Revelations 19, 11 through 16. This is a more intensity of why they shudder. Of the 
Okay. Who's that a description of? Of Jesus. That's of Jesus when he returns for the battle of Armageddon to put evil to rest one last time where he's going to fight all the forces of Satan and the Antichrist in one massive battle. And can you imagine if you as the demons that you know you're his enemy and you know that picture that he is has eyes that glow uh, with a flame of fire that he's got clothes that are white and dipped in blood of his enemies he's got a sword and and yeah and rides uh, and his armies have white horses and that's going to terrify you. They know that that judgment is coming one day. And <clears throat> Jesus is not that beach ball or dust cloud. He's a real physical power. And it is a, a power, that force multiplier that you can tie yourself to. That you can cling to Jesus and he will be that force that will intimidate your enemy. As the song says, that I'm sure you're all familiar with, that rock of ages cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. When you're low, when you're in that low place, when you are being attacked by the accuser, he is who you can cling to. And all that strength and power that you need is in him. And if you build those spiritual muscles by building a relationship with him, by relying on him when you need him, then you can even avoid the battle in the first place. When you feel that you are being put low, feeling worthless, feeling, or even when you realize that you are on the upside with the temptation that you are... Things are almost too good. Maybe that's a point where Satan is going to use that to his advantage. And just by calling on Jesus, asking him for help in those moments, that you can avoid a whole lot of hurt in the beginning. So next time, we're going to, because it's not always avoidable, We're going to learn some more tactics about what to do when you are in the battle and when you actually have to fight it. Okay, thank you very much.